This is James Myers with a note about this episode. Unfortunately, the sound engineer for Plato's Pod, namely myself, failed to ensure my microphone was working properly, and so the sound from my comments throughout this episode isn't as clear as it should have been. This shouldn't in any way detract from the amazing insights that the group contributed to the discussion, and to make it clearer, I have recorded my introduction where the sound was particularly affected. So although you may need to increase the volume a bit for this episode, I'm hoping it will lead you to some fascinating connections, as it did for me when I re-listened to it. So welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is October 22, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a pleasure to welcome in discussion members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. Today we're revisiting the second part of Plato's dialogue, the Timaeus. As we cover from 30D to 47E, the part where the astronomer Timaeus explains the creation of the universe, beginning with the soul and intellect in the center of it all, I've suggested two questions to focus our discussion. The first is whether the depictions by Timaeus of the motions of the soul in its central place in being make logical sense, given our conscious relationship with the physical universe. The second is whether numerical and geometric proportion are as important in the universe as Timaeus claims, given the exacting details of proportions that Plato provides in today's reading. I've posted selections from the reading on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. In discussing the beginning of the Timaeus two weeks ago, we considered the reason for its opening with a recounting of the legend of Atlantis and the imagined city of the Republic that Socrates, Timaeus, and the rest of the group had discussed at length the previous day. In today's reading, we'll encounter some references to justice and social organization, which was the subject of the Republic. We'll also see, repeatedly, the theme of imitation, which is what Socrates and the group had attempted to do the previous day with their idealized city that, at the outset of the Timaeus, Socrates declares a failure. Imitation is a difficult task, as they discovered, and as we heard two weeks ago at 28A, one part of our universe consists of imitations, perhaps somewhat like the shadows of torchlight the prisoner in the cave saw cast on the wall in the Republic's allegory of the cave. So when he distinguished the universe in two parts at 28A, Timaeus described one as the ever-changing and visible realm of becoming that our bodies and all other physical things inhabit. This realm of becoming is where things come to be and pass away in time, by imitating the other part of the universe. That other part is the invisible, changeless, timeless realm of being, where our souls apply reason to make meaning of the changes occurring in the realm of becoming that our physical senses deliver to us. We see both justice and imitation in today's reading, from 41b to c, where Timaeus recounts the Creator's words to the gods that inhabit the stars and which distribute the energy that makes life possible throughout the universe. The Creator directs the gods and the stars to create us mortal beings by imitating Him, since He resides in the realm of being and can create only everlasting things. To the gods, the Creator says, It is you, then, who must turn yourselves to the task of fashioning these living things, as your nature allows. This will assure their mortality, and this whole universe will really be a completed whole. Imitate the power I used in causing you to be and to the extent that it is fitting for them to possess something that shares in our name of immortal, something described as divine and ruling within those of them who always consent to follow after justice and after you, 
I shall begin by sowing that seed and then hand it over to you. The rest of the task is yours. Weave what is mortal to what is immortal. Fashion and beget living things. Give them food, cause them to grow, and when they perish, receive them back again. So in preparing for today's discussion, I was led to re-listen to our season two episodes on the Phaedo, the dialogue that features Socrates discussing the nature of the soul in the hours before his body is put to death. It was quite extraordinary to revisit the Phaedo, particularly Socrates' insistence that everything in the realm of becoming comes to be in opposites, and his emphasis on the soul's capacity to find the equal as a point in the middle of two opposed limits, and which carries information of both. We'll see mention of the equal in today's reading, in the construction of the universe, and in particular in the geometry of the circle and sphere, which Timaeus says are the shapes without beginning and end on which the universe is based. So today, in Timaeus's descriptions of the motions of the soul and some very specific proportions of the universe, we'll hear about the intersection of the same and the different, counter-rotating in disks with points of equivalence in being, with some very specific proportions. What do we make of this, and the extraordinary description of time from 37D to 38C? And how does this prepare us for our next session of the Timaeus in two weeks, covering from 48A to 69A, where Timaeus will go on to describe a third element in the universe that contains all the limits of becoming, and the imitations these limits represent of the timeless forms and being. So I'll start by reading two short passages here on the screen that relate to the motions of the soul, which Timaeus says is at the center of the universe. And so the first of these is from 31a to 31b, where Timaeus says, have we been correct in speaking of one universe, or would it have been more correct to say that there are many, in fact, infinitely many universes? There is but one universe, if it is to have been crafted after its model. For that which contains all of the intelligible living things couldn't ever be one of a pair, since that would require there to be yet another living thing, the one that contained those two, of which they would then be parts. And then it would be more correct to speak of our universe as made in the likeness, now not of those two, but of that other, the one that contains them. So in order that this living thing should be like the complete living thing in respect of uniqueness, the maker made neither two, nor yet an infinite number of worlds. On the contrary, our universe came to be as the one and only thing of its kind, is so now, and will continue to be so in the future. And so I'm wondering what people think about this particular section and the idea that there is only one universe. There are, of course, theories of multiple universes that many scientists are pursuing, and there seems to be good evidence for some of the theories, although, of course, nobody has ever seen multiple universes. So we can consider that question, and I'm wondering whether we think that it's more likely that there is multiple universes or just one. But let me go on to read uh, from 33a to 33b. And this is where Timaeus talks specifically about the shape of the universe. So he says, that is why he concluded that he should fashion the world as a single whole, composed of all wholes, completed and free of old age and disease, and why he fashioned it that way. And he gave it a shape, appropriate to the kind of thing it was. The appropriate shape for that living thing, that is to contain within itself all the living things, would be the one which embraces within itself all the shapes there are. Hence he gave it a round shape, the form of a sphere, with its center equidistant from its extremes in all directions. This of all shapes is the most complete and most like itself, which he gave to it because he believed that likeness is incalculably more excellent than unlikeness, 
And so those are the two sections that I wanted to begin today's discussion with. And I'm wondering if there's any thoughts on whether there is a single universe and or multiple and what the shape of the universe is. What do we think of what Timaeus has said here? And maybe to start with the question of whether there is some logic in this argument of one universe, or do we see any holes in the logic here in either of these two sections? I think I've said before with respect to multiple universes that if there were a multiple, they would be a multiple of something. And so eventually, if we were to go back maybe to the first principle, the basis of the multiple, we would find the one, the universe. Uh, and that's the way I've come to see it. But I'm wondering if uh, there's other ways of looking at this. Are there any thoughts about that or any thoughts about the shape of the universe, this depiction of the universe as a circle and a sphere in three dimensions, and that being potentially the most complete shape for that which is complete the universe? Clem, what are your thoughts? Hello. Hello, everyone. Hello, James. <laughs> Good to be here again. Um, great discussion, as always. Uh, great passages. Uh, eternal questions. <laughs> um, so... The, on the first paragraph, it's just a, a small thought that I have. I mean, it's difficult to disagree, in my opinion, uh, with Plato there. Uh, what kind of uh, intrigues me is that he, he says there has to be, let's say we're dealing with two universes, and he says, well, there has to be another one above these two that would um, kind of you, you know, unite them. And it's interesting way of thinking to me about it because and first of all my, my question is why why there must be something in the realm of ideas around that time that would presuppose that type of thinking to me much simpler would be just to say well yeah we have two universes but why not talk of the two as one universe because you, you simply just whatever new appears any new entity any new discovery, you just throw it into the the existing or combine it with the existing one, which is what he is kind of doing by uh, you know finding the you know the common measures anyway between uh, you know different parts as he calls of of, of the universe or soul or uh, you know created beings, living creatures, and so on. So to me, it just seems much simpler just to say yeah, throw it uh, in a piggy bank, <laughs> you know, and and then just you just have a, a one. And then, but then he kind of postulates, well, we have to have a higher level of entity, a high, higher order of entity that is going to unite the two, maybe like unite the, the opposites of the two or the differences. Uh, and that's just to me, it's just an interesting, maybe it's just the mathematician in him that, that speaks, or maybe, a, uh, you know, a, a, a geometer, maybe it's just a mathematical or, or geometry type of thinking that you have to before blending the two or reconciling the two, you have to find a common, some kind of common commonality or common measures. Maybe, maybe that's the pattern of the thought there. So I'll just finish with that uh, comment for now. That's great. And those are great thoughts. Highlighting the fact that Plato was a geometer, I think geometry is the science of connection. And I guess if there's one single universe, then everything must connect to one thing ultimately. 
And uh, I think that's maybe what uh, we saw last or two weeks ago when we looked at 28A and the everything connects to this realm of being, which is eternal, timeless and changeless. And our bodies and everything physical occupies the realm of becoming where everything is always changing. And you mentioned blending and we'll see that today actually in the blending of the same and the different. Those are two of the key forms that are mentioned in the sophist, uh, which we did three sessions on, uh, three really good sessions on the sophist. And there were five key forms in the sophist actually, the same, the different, change, rest, and that which is. And so actually in this dialogue, we see three of those. We see the same, the different, and being, which is that which is. And then motion is the contrast of change and rest. So uh, I think we'll we'll see some of what you've been talking about in this, and particularly when, when we get into the uh, motions and the questions of proportion. Yeah, I think the the, the common measure, I think, is the, the key thing that you said. Um, so let's keep that in mind and, and see how Plato builds on this theme, and we may come back to those points. So thank you. And next we have Steve, followed by Darren. Steve, welcome. Hello, thank you. And I'd like to address it from your uh, your first point about the your question. I should say about the do uh, the description by Timaeus of motion of a soul and its place of being make logical sense, giving our relationship with the conscious relationship with the physical universe, and then specifically, I think about the uh, the second quote that you read, the appropriate shape for the living thing that is to contain within itself all the living things, uh, the one with embraces itself, all the shapes there are. Here, he gave a, a round shape, the form of a spear. So to, for Timaeus's theory to make logical sense, it must have a, a valid and a sound premise in conclusion. And I, I've thought about this a bit, and I see that that there's at least two critical flaws in uh, the validity of the of this theory. Like I say, I've, I've thought about it a bit, so I'll only talk about the one now. And that's the the whole idea that uh, the Greek cosmology that the Earth is the center of the universe, that all the stars, the planets, the moon, and the sun move about on a great sphere, which they call the heavens, and that they're all at an equal distance rotating about the Earth. So. In their view, uh, the Earth was at the center, and you know all the planets, the moons, the sun, and all the stars were all at equal distance. And um, you know, I got a couple of references from the text, which is a little further on. I'll, I'll just read brief parts of it from 38. Such was the reason then, such that the God designed from coming to be a time that He brought into being the sun, the moon, the five other stars, beginning a time. These are called the wanderers, which is the planets, I guess, is the translation of wanderers. And they came to be in order to set limits, to stand and guard over the numbers of times. When the guide had finished making a body for each of them, he placed them into the orbits traced by the periods of the difference. So all the, the seven bodies, the, the planets and the, the sun and the moon were in the different orbits. Well, the sun, the stars, they thought are perfect in being all together. Then from 39, some, some of the bodies would move in larger circles, others in smaller ones. Later's moving quickly and moving uh, 
Indeed, some move the movements the same, the others go more quickly. And this is all the, all the fact that they, not only did they envision everything being a perfect sphere and circle, that uh, they were incorrect, and about this Earth being the center, they were also incorrect about how the planets actually do rotate around, they rotate around the sun in elliptical orbits. So it appears that sometimes you know, one planet is moving faster than the other, then one overtakes it, then one goes back. And then uh, from 40, this was the reason for uh, everlasting and unwandering st stars, divine living thing, the stars which stay fixed. They didn't, of course, obviously they didn't know that the, the stars were different distances. And again in 40, of the gods that have be come to be within the universe, Earth ranks as the foremost, the one with the greatest seniority. To describe the dancing movements of these gods, the juxtaposition and the back circling and advances of their circular courses on themselves, to tell which of the gods come into line with one another at the conjunctions and how many of them are in opposition and in what order at which time they pass in front of the other. So they're all they're all based, the Greek myths are based on mistaken cosmology. These are all fictitious, uh, fictional stories. Uh, they're entertaining. Uh, there's some, you know, great insight in a lot of the stories, but it's no more accurate to make up a cosmology based on this than if you were used something like uh, the Game of Thrones. So apologize for the length, but uh, just a few thoughts on that. Well, and, and thank you for highlighting those sections. And I, we'll get to some of those actually. Um, I'm not sure that the cosmology in Plato's view was that everything revolved around the earth. I think that was the Aristotelian view, but I think Plato was a little bit different. And in fact, I'm just looking for the section in here. I, I know I highlighted it, but I highlighted too many things. And so I can't quite find it now. But at one point uh, he says that the earth was set on the axis of the universe, which was a very interesting point. Uh, it made me think of the Earth's core being iron and uh, supernovas being triggered by forging of an iron in the collapse of a star, which you know, stars are talked about a lot in this dialogue. In fact, he places the gods in the stars. So, yeah, I, I think we need to get into that cosmology more, but I'm not sure that I read it the same way. Um, but I think the, the role of the stars in particular here is going to be something that's important for the soul, because at one point, uh, he says that there is a soul for every star, uh, which is an interesting point. It, it makes me think of our discussion about uh, the FIO back in January of 2022, in which there were a lot of questions among us about how many souls there are. Is there a limit to the number of souls? Well, here he's actually saying that there's as many souls as there are stars. So I'll go back to those sections that you, you pointed out, and I'll look at how they connect. I, I connect them in a different way. Uh, but I'd like to see how others think as well. So um, so thank you for raising those. And we'll uh, take Darren next. Hey, everyone. So I guess it's just a quick response to Steve, and then I'll get back to uh, James's uh, original, uh, the passage you read originally. I don't know. We might be getting a little too ahead of ourselves here. There's just so much in this text that Steve is bringing to the fore, like some stuff from later on. I mean, it's important, it's important, but I feel like there's just so much to grasp here. Um, and just a quick comment about that. Like my own, I guess my own view is that I'm reading this text more for a 
metaphysical vision of the universe of how the like what are the basic what Plato or Timaeus imagines to be its basic constituents, how they hold together, how they're relevant for our own lives and ethical living. Like, I, I guess it, it's that like the details are we're still we're literally still working out the details in astrophysics and physics. OK, about the universe like that's not solved yet. But like here, I, I'm just interested in, you know, they, they had clues. They they knew a lot of mathematics and geometry. They had clues about what the world might be like. And I'm interested in how, you know, Timaeus or I don't know, Plato maybe is holding all this together. And um, yeah, and I think the vision that comes through when I read this text, the first time I've ever really read this dialogue, at least closely, I, I think there's a pretty wondrous vision that's being presented, but we can, we'll get to that. Okay, so back to James's um, passage about the one universe and also the shape of the universe. So, I couldn't help but think of um, how the how how the ideas and the kinds of arguments being used here just seem very Christian. Though of course Christianity came much you know, centuries later, but I'm sure this was a very major influence on Christianity because I mean th this dialogue and Plato himself is really presenting sort of a very new view of what God and gods are. I mean, it's not, this is not the, <laughs> this is not the traditional view of, you know, the ancient Greek gods with, although those are going to come up later, although I have, I think it comes up in a very curious way. He says that we should just take these on faith, which is very weird. And he, and he sort of brackets them, but he's really trying to present this new vision of what God is. And, but it, it ends up sounding very like, you know, Christianity, though, of course, Christi Christianity is being influenced by the Timaeus and Plato, not the other way around. So for instance, the idea of a one universe like the argument for it is what like it's it's because it's it's good and it imitates the goodness of the uh, original model or something right and then but the but interesting one is the sphere and how like in his description there you know he talks about you know the sphere was the most appropriate shape to this living thing that is the universe that's being created because it is most complete and most like itself you know, it doesn't need anything, appendages or anything, because it has everything in and of itself. So ultimately, a sphere makes the most sense. And so, and then he says at the end here, a 33D, um, anything that they did or experienced, it was designed to do or experience within itself and by itself. For the builder thought that if it were self-sufficient, it would be a better thing than if it required other things. So this idea of its self-sufficiency, it doesn't need anything else. And so it's complete and whole in and of itself. And this kind of argument about about its ultimate goodness is also, you know, I guess the argument seemed to show that it was also it's also why only one universe there's only one universe that was created. So to, just to wrap up my point here, um, I guess it comes back to something that actually some something from last week we didn't quite get to, which is one of my favorite parts from the text last week, and unfortunately we'd get to it, but this gives me an opportunity to bring it up. So because uh, which is at thirty e or sorry twenty nine e. So sure, the universe created has these qualities because they are good and self-sufficient and the best qualities. But why did this God create this universe in the first place? So Timaeus says here at 29E, very well then. Uh, now, why did he who framed this whole universe becoming frame it? Let us state the reason why. He was good. And one who is good can never become jealous of anything. And so being free of jealousy, he wanted everything to become as much like himself as was possible. In fact, men of wisdom will tell you, and you couldn't do better than to accept their claim, that this, more than anything else, was the most preeminent reason for the origin of the world's coming to be. I don't know. I'm just trying to see how much of this I want to read. 
and then he talks about how like order was in every way better in this order and so on. Okay, it goes on for a long time. But basically, the important point here is that the very reason why the universe was created in the first place was because the creator is good. And it's out of his goodness that he created this universe uh, for all these living things. And it has these qualities. So, and of course, and then the argument continues. That's, that was sort of actually the very beginning of the argument. And then it continues like, well, was there one universe? Well, it, one universe because it's good. And then what, what's the shape of the universe? Well, it's a sphere because it's perfectly self-sufficient because the universe is ultimately, the, the whole thing altogether is good. And, and so on. I guess, yeah. So just the point about how there's some very Christian ideas here about God as the good and goodness. And also, yeah, the, this very interesting point. I thought like, why, well, why did he even create this darn universe? Well, because he was good. Um, and the argument proceeds from there. So, all right, I, I, that's it for now. So thanks. And thank you for reading that section from 29. And actually, I, I found a section that I read in the introduction from 41b to 41c kind of contained those elements of maybe early Christianity, especially, you know, when the creator is talking to the gods, telling them to uh, weave the mortal into the immortal, uh, and that's kind of, you know, joining the realm of becoming, which our bodies reside in, to the realm of being, which our minds reside in. And I find that connection to be very empowering. And I think that's, um, you know, maybe if if that eternal goodness is in that realm of being, that's telling us that we have a share of that eternal goodness. And I think that's part of uh, some religious messages. So um, I found that was that was quite interesting. So thank you for raising that. I think the other thing, too, is that if the universe is going to contain all of the intelligible living things, as was said in 31a to b, that first passage that I read, can intelligence exist if it's incomplete, if it's fragmented? Uh, and so if there were, say, two universes or three or four universes and there was only one of them was accessible to the intelligence, then would the intelligence be really intelligent? Or would it be limited? And so I think here, I think what's being said is that a, a, a complete universe was created, one universe only, and the intelligence has access to all of it in that realm of being. And I find that pretty empowering. Um, so I, I just wanted to point out that line about all of the intelligible living things. And I think we'll see in the next section that I'll read, um, 34a to 34c, we'll see that seating of the intelligence or intellect right at the center of the universe, like right in the center of it all. So thank you for that. And we'll go to Brenda. Brenda. Yeah, thank you. Um, I wanted to respond to what Steve had brought up. Very well thought out points. And you can hardly disagree with what Steve said in terms of the fact that our universe is not put together the way Plato envisioned it. But I think that the bigger point is to go deeper than that. I think Plato was trying to, you know, he probably believed what he said about the planets. That's kind of immaterial. But he, I think his bigger points is what he saw as he looked out into his world. And you try to put yourself into his place he lived in a world where science, the scientific method didn't exist yet. What did he see? He saw order. He saw harmony. And I think these are the bigger points that he's trying to get at, that there is a order in the cosmos and a harmony in the cosmos. And the idea that a healthy mind is an 
ordered mind and an unhealthy mind is an unordered mind. And there have been more contemporary sources of basically um, verifying that line of thinking. Um, I'm going to put one book in the in the chat. It's called The Power of Limits, Proportional Harmonies in Nature, Art, and Architecture, in which this person sees repeating patterns throughout nature. So kind of exactly, I think, when I read Plato, what I think Plato was actually trying to get at, that there are these repeating, there is an order that repeats itself and that that is the divine order. And just the whole thing I said before about what it means to be in order and what it means to be in disorder. And I think, you know, that's clear in what he says. I think we can just skip the details and I call the, the cosmic order that he, you know, described as, as, as a detail and try to just stick with um, what he's really trying to, I think, tell us. Thank you. And that was helpful, I think, uh, certainly for those where the, the details um, become troublesome. Certainly, I think going to the basis of what he's trying to tell us is helpful because I, I think part of the details, and I, again, I'm reading them a little bit differently, and I'm actually seeing some scientific validity in them. But I think there's a language difference. And I think also we need to go back to those proportions. We'll, we'll see some of those proportions uh, in particular, you know, maybe maybe about an hour into our discussion. But I think there are some actual specifics here that could actually be scientifically um, provable. But again, as you say, if, if we don't like that, we can at least look at the other things that he's saying. And certainly the, the idea of order and harmony is key. The power of limits is really interesting that you mentioned because our next discussion in two weeks will be all about the limits. It will be about the creation of a container to contain all the limits that exist in the realm of becoming. In the realm of being, there are no limits. It's limitless. But in the realm of becoming, is full of limits, and you need a container for that. And that's what he's going to talk about in the next section uh, that we'll talk about in two weeks. I just wanted to point out about uh, order at 42b, again, talking about justice here. It said, and if they could master these emotions, he's talking about the humans, if they could master these emotions, their lives would be just, whereas if they were mastered by them, they would be unjust. And so there's the idea of that harmony and mastery and creation of order within the self uh, by mastering the emotions as a form of justice. Uh, and again, that echo back to the Republic. So uh, yeah, thank you for highlighting those points. Um, we'll, we'll go to Clem. So I, I wanted to go back just, just for a little while, uh, back to paragraph one, uh, to what I was saying and the, the question that I was raising. As I as I listened to other folks uh, talking on the same subject, I, th I think I might have actually answered uh, my own question there. So let's see if it's, if it's going to hold. So when Plato posits two distinct universes instead of one, I think he probably means that they are not reconcilable, just if we have two entities like that. So there's, let's say it's not possible to find common measure between them. Uh, and so then you have to postulate on something that will have that key, right, to, to kind of reconcile, or maybe that will have common measure with both. Because it's important to me to 
whether I agree or disagree with the metaphysics that the Greeks are building, right? It just just intrigues me how they develop their thoughts or how they're trying to answer their question or the problems that they encounter in, in their way of thinking. And um, I, I wonder if, if that's because to be like a 100% true philosopher, you cannot just say, oh, we, we have two universes. They're distinct, but we can let's just throw them all in, in a piggy bank because you just broke your own rule. So you have to postulate something else, maybe of something of a higher order that will have that key that will help reconcile. And, and also another thing is probably the idea of the causality there. There's something that is a principle of both, which if so, then it would immediately translate into a higher level reality because of the, of the direction of the causality. If I'm interpreting this correctly, I think I think this is his way of uh, explaining this, and and that's why he posited like a third entity on on top of the existing two, and that's it. And it only hinges on the presupposition that you cannot just blend these two. So in other words, you cannot say oh two, but they're really the part of one. So you can you can combine them because that that sort of defeats the the purpose. Because I think that's a that's more of a philosopher in Plato there. Uh, I think versus the second paragraph, it to me, it's, I may be wrong there, but it seems like it's a more obvious problem to, I think he's more of a geometer there because, and especially that sentence that's highlighted and then bolded, the one which embraces uh, within itself all the shapes there are. Well, if we think about sphere or a circle, right, in order to measure it, right? You, you have to break it into a simpler shapes, right? And in fact, you go into the infinity, like you start with triangles and then you just create infinite number of triangles in a way too. So to me, that's a geometer or, you know, the algebra professor that kind of speaks in, in him that says, yeah, I could see how a round shape or spherical shape can uh, contain all other forms because all other forms that are not spherical, they would have some kind of angles. And it's just easier to deal with angles that we can measure than, or, or, or things that have side, like straight lines, sides, you know, squares, uh, parallelograms, and, and so on. So I may be wrong there, but it just seems that it's just uh, an analogy that he's using in the, in the second paragraph. So that's, that's, all I wanted to add at this point. What you said made me really think and, and helped me to solidify some of the connections I was thinking about. One interesting thing about the sphere, and we'll hear about this in two weeks when we talk about the next section, is the five so-called platonic solids. And we call them platonic solids because Plato introduced them to the world in this dialogue. Uh, they are the only five regular solids in the universe. And their interesting property is that they are the only five solids in the universe, all of whose vertices inscribe sphere. And maybe he's telling us a message here. He was a geometer. And I think there is some particularly interesting geometry here. Uh, we'll hear in some later sections today how uh, the same and the different counter-rotate as disks against each other. And there's some particular spherical geometry in that. and you know, there's a number of particular references, as I said, to proportion that uh, are very interesting and curious. And maybe he's trying to provoke us into thinking about 
the geometry of the universe and the logic of the universe is a logic geometric. We'll see a very interesting passage, probably when we get to it, maybe in about half an hour, about the nature of time itself. And he talks about time as being based on number, which is a really interesting passage. And I want to spend some time talking about that. So thank you for raising you know, all of those points, reconciling the common measuring. If you had multiple universes, you would have multiple middles. And then where would you place the intelligence? In which of those middles would you place the intelligence? Here he's saying, we'll see in the next section, that he's saying you have to place it in the, in the middle of everything. Uh, we talked about the causality. Everything comes to be from a cause is what we've heard Socrates say before. Um, and you know, how would you ever get to a first principle? How would dialectic ever work? Dialectic is seeking a first principle. If there were multiple universes, you'd never have a perfect dialectic. So that's an interesting thing too. So yeah, thanks for all of that. And again, the common measure, because what we'll see shortly is uh, the soul measures things and it measures things by looking for the equal, as I said in the introduction, and it's looking for the equal so it can find the two limits, the two limits in becoming. And knowing those two limits, it's able then to establish the, the nature of the thing that's becoming. And I think that's very important, you know, that common measure, it, it has to be common to the soul. So that really highlights a number of uh, very key things that I uh, appreciate. Thank you. And we'll go to Darren. Yeah, I raised my hand again because I want to respond to what Brenda said and what she said about how um, a healthy mind is the ordered mind and the unhealthy mind is the uh, disordered mind. This reminds me of a section I really like in the reading today which is at the very end, actually, of the text today. So maybe, I don't know if we're jumping ahead a bit, but I just thought I'll throw this in because, I mean, this question, this issue pertains to, like, what is the relevance or significance of this dialogue, right? Like, given all the things that we think, um, all the physics and maybe astrophysics, we have um, more knowledge of now. I mean, I, I think that's undeniable, right? <laughs> Although he might have you know, good clues about and good guesses about a lot of things, but we certainly know a lot more now. But like, so what is the um, relevance of this dialogue or significance of it for us? And I said earlier, I think there is because I don't think the details of the astrophysics is what's important as the metaphysical vision and, and the place of the human being and our place in it. And so, yeah, Brendan mentioned how healthy mind is the ordered mind. And, and so at the very end of the text today, um, he talks about how, you know, one of the visions we have vision is that so we can find out about the universe. Um, so I'll just read this at 47C. Yeah, the God invented sight and gave it to us so that we might observe the orbits of intelligence in the universe or the stars and apply them to the revolutions of our own understanding. For there is a kinship between them. Even though our revolutions like inside of us are disturbed, whereas the universal orbits are undisturbed. So once we have come to know them and to share in the ability to make correct calculations according to nature, we should stabilize the strained revolutions within ourselves by imitating the completely unstrained revolutions of the God. And then okay, I won't read the next paragraph, but and then and he goes on to talk about sound and hearing, but specifically music. It's a really great paragraph, but he says this one line here that's important in this context, which is that he talks about the muses. And is a gift of muses if our dealings with them are guided by understanding, not for irrational pleasure for which people nowadays seem to make use of it, but to serve as an ally in the fight to bring order to any orbit in our souls that has become unharmonized and make it concordant with itself. And then he talks about rhythm too, has likewise been given to us by the muses for the same purpose to assist us. 
For with most of us, our condition is such that we have lost all sense of measure and are lacking in grace. This adds a bit to what Brenda was saying, because I think what is um, being said here, what I really like about this is that one really important way of putting ourselves and our minds in order and to have that healthy mind that Brenda was referring to is to learn the truth about, first of all, learn the truth about the world, <laughs> uh, the universe, and somehow doing that actually helps us. Like there's all this work, like people are trying to figure out how to be, you know, how to how to have mental health or whatever. But maybe one one important way is just to like reach out into the world and try to find out some truth in the world. Maybe that that will help us. And I think that's what it's being said here. And then of course the music thing is great too. So it's saying how like our work within ourselves requires work in understanding the world and how like it comes together. Like he says here, there's a kinship between them. There's very words we read in the text. And so I really like that view, right? Maybe this is just a bias of someone who's interested in philosophy and science. <laughs> but, you know, part of the work of, you know, becoming happier and maybe or or healthier mind is is just to like try to find out about the world and and learn about the truth of it. You know, if you learn the truth of it, it'll help put your own mind in order. And this one, so one final point, just to wrap this up. So people were talking about how this dialogue is valid and what kind of validity it has. But I think insofar as following some of its counsels and following the direction it points to, because it's going to present this, I think, really marvelous vision of the universe and our place in it and how like literally each of us have an equality with everyone else. We're each are assigned a star and so on and so forth. It's going to it's going to look really marvelous. And I think like another kind of validity to the dialogue that we should, you know, consider is what it does for us and our own minds. Like insofar as we can fit ourselves into the cosmos in the way it describes and insofar as we, you know, come to have its organized way of understanding our place in the world and all the things we want to make sense of. Um, and also how it maybe gives us an ordered and healthy mind that Brenda was referring to, you know, maybe if it all comes together that way and it's not misleading us in any of these ways and, you know, and so that it does give us this ordered mind, maybe that's a kind of validity too. It's a kind of validity we we know by looking within ourselves in our own lives rather than, you know, any sort of like objective measurement out there, which is not, which is important, but like I'm saying maybe there's this other kind of validity too that, you know, insofar as we accept the vision it presents us and the effects it has on us. So anyway, that's just a possibility, some possibilities I'm putting out there, just following up on what Brenda said. And I like the way that you tied the harmonics or the idea of harmony and in, in music uh, to understanding of ourselves. And it makes me think of Socrates' statement that the unexamined life is not worth living. And so maybe part of the purpose of this is to tell us how we can examine our lives, but to tell us that in examining our lives, we have to be aware that this uh, realm of becoming, the realm that we see with our eyes and sense with our four other physical senses is not all that there is. The realm of becoming can get very confusing, I think, as you said, um, and that's because, you know, we don't sometimes understand the causes of things, and we make assumptions, and we might perceive things differently. And so we, our task in life is to maybe understand this realm of becoming, uh, but understand that it's not everything that we just, it's not just what our senses deliver to us, it's what our reason makes sense of. And in the Republic, reason was the center of the soul. 
Uh, reason was that which mediates appetite and or desire and spirit. Uh, and reason exists in the realm of being, which is different from the realm of becoming. So it, this is very much, I think, 28A of Timaeus. And, and you know that, that section that you read, I have it on the screen here, was one of the sections I had selected. A little geometric drawing of a uh, square inscribing a circle for many reasons, because I think it relates to this dialogue and some of the proportions that um, Timaeus talks about. But I would note in that section that you read, the word imitating is there as well. Uh, so imitating the completely unstrained revolutions of the god. So what we see is always straying about. It's always changing. It's always straying. But the realm of being where the god is, uh, is not straying. And so we have to somehow find our way to maybe what Clem was talking about, that common measure, which doesn't stray. And that's maybe right in the center of that diagram that I have there of the square inscribed in the circle. That's not straying. Everything else strays. So, yeah, thank you for all of those ideas. I think uh, they're very helpful to make us uh, think. And we'll go to Steve and then to Ginny. Yeah, just to respond briefly, because since uh, Aaron brought up validity so many times there, so it, it seems to you know, relate back to uh, exactly to what I was talking about. Uh, as, as Brenda pointed out that the uh, uh, Timaeus was a Pythagorean and, uh, you know, it, when uh, Darren's talking about the validity, he's saying you have to be aware of what is what is actually real in the world. Well, that is, you can't uh, disavow the uh, physical cosmology and what was influencing the thought at the time. And, um, you know, the validity of the system that they're putting forward, you have to look at what, what are they basing it on. They're basing it on a demiurge and the idea that the, uh, this is the idea of intelligent design, that the world, the universe was designed based on us, based on humans. This is the same thing as creationism and intelligent design where, you know, they want to teach the Bible in science classes. Well, it's the same, you know, to look at it and to give a, uh, a critical assessment of, of the ideas, you have to look at what the influences were and, and what they're saying. And they're, they're looking at the universe based on this uh, Pythagorean system, which that does not play out in, in, in what the modern physical sciences are, you know, the non-Euclidean geometry, uh, differential equations and calculuses, in, you can't use any of these to to get a weather forecast or to get a you know um, you know an accurate model of what is is the, the real world is actually. So I, my point is basically that if you just take this idealistic view, then you don't necessarily uh, get in tune with what what physically may be going on in the real world. And you might be deluding yourself. And again, the idea that it's the world was centered on us and the world is centered on, the universe is centered on the earth. The universe was made by for an intelligent beings is really a very limited view based on you know who we are and from our point of view. And it doesn't take into effect what you know, the actuality could be that, you know, there could be many other worlds that could have evolved differently from us if, say, a, a comet hadn't hit us, you know, 
so many million years ago and wiped out all the dinosaurs, you know, our, our type of intelligent view of, of the universe wouldn't even exist. Thanks. And thank you for pointing out a number of those things. Uh, the idea of intelligent design is interesting. You said that the universe, I mean, I guess you expressed a view that the universe was uh, designed for us or around us, which I don't think he's saying here exactly, and maybe I'm just reading it differently, but in this next section that I'll read, and so what you said kind of helps to introduce that, he says, in the center, he set A's, which he extended out throughout the whole body. So he didn't say our souls. And in fact, um, he said that uh, the the creator did not himself create us. He couldn't create us because if he were to create us, we would be immortal and we couldn't be immortal. There's only one immortal thing in the universe. So he left our creation to the gods in the stars to create us using the energy of the stars, right? And the stars output energy. Um, so I think that's that's my understanding of that, that it's not was not created for us, but was created for a soul. And in fact, there's I'll I'll read this section momentarily, but um I think that's an important thing. Uh, you mentioned to non-Euclidean geometry, Darren actually posted an interesting video in the chat for this, uh, talking about non-Euclidean geometry and hy specifically hyperbolic geometry, which is actually, in a sense, I mean, non-Euclidean was a world word that Gauss applied to it, but it's really, I think, Euclidean geometry, but just bending it around in different forms so that you get an infinity of in Euclidean geometry. I think that's an interesting point that uh, physics is now still uh, not fully resolved on. Uh, I think that that continues to be explored. Um, differentiation and calculus is actually a very interesting thing that you mentioned because we'll see, I have a section 37a to 37c about the soul's ability to differentiate. Um, now, if you have a circle, differentiation is to find the lengths of all of those infinite lines inside the circle. And then when you integrate, you put them all together to form the circle. So Plato's not using our modern language of calculus in terms of differentiation and integration, but I think he's maybe talking about the same sort of thing that Leibniz and Newton found. So all very interesting points, and, and I think we can continue to consider those. Um, and and, and you know, we'll read more and we'll maybe find more in there. So thank you for that. And we'll go to Ginny. Yeah, well, you know, just talking about one one universe, two universe, and then to to hear scientists talking about there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of universes out there is it's I can't help but think, oh my God, you know, um, how things, development, discoveries have changed since the time of Plato. Anyway, um, that's all. Thank you. Yeah, I think maybe maybe what you're referring to is galaxies. Um, maybe not galaxies at the universes also, no? Universes. Um, well, I think some scientists now say that there are multiple universes uh, and some have a multi multiverse theory, but I don't think anybody's observed mul multiple universes, but certainly we've observed, I think they're now up into the trillions of galaxies. Uh, there just seems to be an endless amount of galaxies within this universe. At one time, we thought that our solar system was the universe, uh, and now we know that it's much more than that. So, uh, but now the, the discoveries continue, and it, it is mind-boggling to think, you know, just in our little galaxy, one of trillions, perhaps. Um, yeah, I was just looking. Uh, 
they say they are like maybe 100 to 200 billion galaxies. So it's not in the trillions, not yet, at any rate. <laughs> All right. They, they, they have been changing. Sam, I think, I think that background noise is maybe your phone. So, um, well, no, thank you for that. And we'll go to Klim, and then I'll do this reading from 34A to 34C. Yes, one small comment on the second paragraph again, and to what already um, other folks talked about the the round shape and um, the validity of what Plato or the cosmology that he's building to our modern science. Um, yes, I mean, there's no denial that uh, the modern science, um, you know, went, you know, you know, potentially to explore other dimensions. I mean, there's the uh, there's growth, growth in in mathematical uh, you know, sciences and all sorts of explorations in in uh, you know measuring the physical reality and so on. There's no de denial of that. Our modern scientific picture is quite different, but at the same time. I would say that there's still validity to what Plato is saying, because and then it's it's a simple question: isn't isn't our atomic model still based on the uh, sort of like the solar system in a way, which is sort of a, a resemblance of the center and the periphery, and it, don't don't we still measure energy in terms of like the radius? So it it all comes down to this, in a nutshell, to a, a one basic model of something that's that moves along the uh, you know, the orbit that approximates uh, a sphere or a circle. Uh, so from that uh, standpoint, we're not really that far away. Even in our most advanced scientific discoveries, we're, we're still clinging to that old cosmological concept in a way so we i don't think we've departed that from that i don't think we've we've uh, abolished that completely at, at this point because we'd have to if we do abolish that the atomic theory then what else i mean is we have to come up with something that's that's going to be completely different i mean talking like about fields and you know maybe something maybe that's closer to an electric field but then again if my memory is still serves me right, even we still measure even the electrical currents to based on similar atomic models. It's it's all it it all revolves about say, radius or some measurement that has to do with radius and circular motion. So, uh, I mean, it's something to think about. Um, can we depart from that completely? And would be I think would be if we did, it would be a complete breakthrough. But I think so far we are not. Two thousand years is not maybe such a such a uh, you know long time um, you know from from that standpoint. Thanks. Thank you. That that was a really interesting observation about radius. Actually, I hadn't thought about how often radius appears in physical uh, equations. It makes me think even of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which involves two pi. You, you take the um, the Planck constant, which is the smallest. Uh, distance, the smallest time, the smallest measure in the universe, and you divide it by 2 pi, which is a circle. And then it makes me think, too, about the measure of uh, the event horizon of a black hole is based on radius, uh, gravitational constant, um, I I Einstein's field equations, 
radius appears there. Um, so very interesting idea. Thank you for that. It makes me think so. And certainly the atomic model, it, it's an interesting idea. And I think we're still maybe discovering things about the atomic model. I think there's a lot that's still unsettled on that. So, so I appreciate that. Um, Darren, but maybe what I'll do is I'll just, just do this one reading first. And then um, if, if you don't mind, then we can take your point. Um, because I'd like to get to this and put this on the table because I think it really helps to put in context some of what we've, what we've spoken about. And I think it'll uh, hopefully be related to what you're uh, thinking about, Darren, as well. So I'll just read this, uh, these three paragraphs here. This is from 34A to 34C. Timaeus goes on to say, in fact, he awarded it the movement suited to its body, the one of the seven motions, which is especially associated with understanding and intelligence. And so he set it turning continuously in the same place, spinning upon itself. All the other six motions he took away and made its movement free of their wanderings. Let me just skip a little bit and I pick it up again. Applying this entire train of reasoning to the God that was yet to be, the eternal God made it smooth and even all over, equal from the center, a whole and complete body itself, but also made up of complete bodies. In the center, he set a soul, which he extended throughout the whole body, and with which he then covered the body outside. He then set it to turn in a circle, a single solitary universe, whose very excellence enables it to keep its own company without requiring anything else. And for the world's soul, even though we are now embarking on an account of it after we've already given an account of its body, it isn't the case that the God devised it to be younger than the body. For the God would not have united them and then allow the elder to be ruled by the younger. We have a tendency to be casual and random in our speech, reflecting, no doubt, the whole realm of the casual and random of which we are a part. The God, however, gave priority and seniority to the soul, both in its coming to be and in the degree of its excellence to be the body's mistress and to rule over it as her subject. So I really like those three paragraphs. I, I like that empowerment of the soul right at the end, that the soul is the oldest in the universe. The, the, the physical was not created first. The soul was created first, and the soul was put in the center, and the, everything physical was built around the soul. And I think maybe I see some logic in this, and I wonder what others think, to the extent that if uh, the soul is to have knowledge uh, and intelligence of physical things, wouldn't it have to be in the middle of those physical things? It couldn't be at the edge because it would miss things at the other edge. So uh, I kind of have this vision in my head of, you know, a, a giant sphere of the universe as a giant sphere and the soul, right? The soul of the universe, right in the middle of it from which vantage point it can see anything that happens in that sphere. Um, and so that would seem to me a logical place to put intelligence at that point, that at that vantage point that has access to everything else. And if that's the realm of becoming, then then that's, that's where the logic of trying to tie together everything that's happening in this realm of becoming that's surrounding it tying that logic to that one central point, that that common measure maybe that Clem was talking about earlier. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. And I'll just make a, a note about the, I put footnotes throughout these notes. Actually, I don't think I've ever put as many footnotes as I have put in these notes today. Uh, but I have put a footnote on the seven motions uh, because there he's saying, again, that the soul has this one motion. It's, it's sitting in the middle, rotating around itself. It's kind of like able to reflect on everything, right? So it has access to everything and it can reflect on everything. The other six motions um, were mentioned in uh, the slide that reference. 
where uh, the other six motions were at uh, 43, yeah, 43B, the other six motions are described uh, as existing in pairs of opposites. And these are the motions that we're all familiar with in our daily lives, forwards and backwards, right and left, upwards and downwards. So he's saying that uh, he reserved one motion that's spinning around the center for the soul. And then all of those other motions are motions that happen in the realm of becoming. And those are the physical motions that we exert. But we have this ability in the middle to reflect on everything that's happening in the surroundings. So uh, so I just I wanted to bring those points up because I think hopefully they help to encapsulate some of what we've spoken about and, and maybe some of the logic that uh, Timaeus was trying to present here. So uh, we'll go to Darren then. Yeah, that's a, I really like those passages too. And um, I did want to, so I originally put my hand up because I wanted to respond to what Steve was saying, but I guess I maybe can work in <laughs> maybe what, what you just read is a, is, is kind of relevant, could be relevant too. So like it's describing this, the motion of the universe. And then um, later on, it's going to talk about the specific, more specific gods too, like the, I guess, lower gods, <laughs> I don't know what you call them. Um how this motion that this special motion they have like this uh what does he say turning continuously in the same place spinning around upon itself um is the motion they say or this he says associated with understanding and intelligence i mean i love this thought you know that like like when we're watching the stars and we're looking at the stars we're like really looking at the the like they're they're like being identified with the in intelligence of the universe you know it, there's something very um i don't know like hard to wrap your head around <laughs> it's like a different it's like a very different way of looking at the world and even understanding what like understanding itself is and intelligence is and this idea of the emotion is um a turning or spinning upon itself it really reminds me of i mean it reminds me of so many other dialogues in plato like i think the the very important one is a phaedrus where the souls, when they find love and their purpose in life, like what they do basically is like they go, <laughs> they sort of float up to heaven. Like this is the this is the myth that's been presented. They float up to heaven and then they do they keep continuously circle around like the forms of truth, uh, goodness, and beauty. And you know, it's it's not a static thing. And uh, I think it also ties in with it reminds me of the importance of wonder often in Plato how like he actually seems to see writing as a threat to knowledge and because it's like static is on the paper. We think we know everything just because it's in the book. Um, but, you know, to really have knowledge and understanding, we have to sort of put our wonder and curiosity into motion. And so anyway, it just reminds us of so many things, right? <laughs> this, this idea of motion associated with um, understanding intelligence, but okay. So let's bring me back. So I'm bringing, bringing this back with what Steve said. Um, so Steve was, um, uh, criticizing this view for being um or, or the vision being presented as being um anthropocentric right it's like human centered and this idea of intelligent design just seems very you know it's it, it just seems like it doesn't seem to be valid we have issues <laughs> many thinking people have issues with the intelligent design view although maybe there are different versions of that and i think we're thinking of the christian maybe a kind of a conservative christian version but to me i guess like my response to steve is that whether this stands up depends on like what you want your basic metaphysical vision to do. And so I said, I think near the beginning that 
like its importance and significance is in its metaphysics and in telling us and showing us how like the very basic constituents of reality fit together and for and part of that reality you know you might not like it which is fine steve you know you don't want it you don't you don't feel like any need to like go there explain it or whatever but for plato an important part of it and we see in all the dialogues you know is the idea of the good <laughs> and what and what a good life is and so and, and of course this ties in with the context of this dialogue which we which we discussed um last uh or two weeks ago, last meeting, which is, you know, putting this Republic into motion. Like he actually doesn't know if this Republic they created is actually good. Socrates has questions about it. This is actually what motivated this dialogue. Let's not forget. So yeah, so it, it's, so he's trying to, he's trying to create a vision that like brings the idea of the soul, the good, the good um, together with also the question of like, where this universe came from? I don't know if science can tell us that like, okay, well, it came from the big bang. Well, why was there a big bang? Like what created big bang? And then you can just keep going back. <laughs> and so there, there's all these elements, right? So this idea of the soul seems to be connected with intelligence and understanding and maybe consciousness as you know, in the more contemporary language. Um, so it depends on what you want to do, right? If you just want like a very like I don't know a, atomic view of the world, that's all you feel like you want to explain, and that's fine. I'm not I'm not I'm not going to criticize if that's all you really care about. But then you know maybe yeah, this won't serve you. But I think for a lot of people, they they want to see how everything like people experience suffering. They want to understand what how everything fits into everything. And I think there is a vision here that creates, as I said, a kind maybe to the extent it serves us in putting our minds and our in order, as um, I think it was Brenda who said, who mentioned that, then there's something, that's something the dialogue will give us too. And it's a kind of validity it might have too. I'm not denying other kinds of validity, like logical and or so on and so on, but like, you know, but there's a kind of validity about what it does for our lives and ethically. Okay, so just very, very quickly, I want to say, I don't think that, so having actually, having said all that, I also, I actually don't think that the vision presented is actually all that anthropocentric per se. It says that we share in the goodness and we share in intelligence and understanding and, and these eternal forms, which we find out are, the eternal forms are really just very obscure things like proportion and like related to mathematics. So let's not, let's not get ahead of ourselves and think like there's form of chair or whatever. And that's the ultimate form of the universe. Like the forms that, that seem to be ultimately presented are like these obscure like ideas, like proportions and relationships between things. So I don't think it's anthropocentric because like, we're just a little part of this. I think that's presenting, but it's, it is a bit awe inspiring, I think, because we are, because in the end, it, it does mean we are a part of something bigger, much bigger and meaningful than, than our little lives. But I don't think it makes us the center. In fact, it's saying ethically, it counsels us to understand that we are just this little part. And actually this understanding uh, that although we are a small part, but we're still important. He says we all have equality. We all have, we each have a star in, in the heavens. Then like that does give us importance, but this doesn't put like, I don't know if it literally puts us in the middle of the universe or whatever. It says that we need to like ethically to do, to do well, we should actually understand our important place, but also limited place in the universe. So anyway, I'm just that we can debate that, but I'm just gonna throw in, throwing that out there too. <laughs> and, and thanks for bringing up Phaedrus and the souls circling the forms of the true, the good and the beautiful. I think that's a, an interesting idea. And the idea of you know intelligence interpreting motion. And I think that's you know the logical place for me, it seems, for that to do is in the middle of it all. But that doesn't mean, as I said before, that um the universe was built for human souls on Earth. Um, I think it's it's just talking here about a soul, and 
This relates to what we heard in the syllabus, uh, where it was said that the universe itself has a soul. And I remember uh, in that discussion and subsequently, you know, my thinking was that, well, if we individually have souls or you know, whatever word you want to use for it, animating force or invisible force inside us that causes us to, or by which we cause our bodies to do things and by which we cause our mouths to say things, then if we have that, then the universe has to have at least as much as we have. We can't have more than the universe has. So it does seem somewhat logical here that there would have to be a soul and the universe itself would have a soul. And that I think what is being said here is that we share in that soul. Um, and as I said before, I, I think that's pretty empowering idea. So, so thank you for raising that. Um, and you mentioned the forms and we'll see, as I mentioned earlier, the forms in the next section that we'll read in two weeks. So. Uh, Brenda, your thoughts? Yeah, thank you. Um, the part, I'm so glad, James, that you brought up this part because there's one line here that when I read it, I think my my heart actually surged. You know, it's like I, I knew that what I was hearing was profound truth. <laughs> and that's the line, this last line of, um, I guess your first paragraph, but kind of the middle of the page. And he set it to turn in a circle, a single solitary universe whose very excellence enables it to keep its own company without requiring anything else. It's that last part that just struck me. So, you know, he, Plato has so many dialogues where they discuss, can you teach virtue or not? And it's it's kind of like the way he's describing the soul here is your center. And if you just stay in your soul and listen to your own soul your soul won't lie to you your soul won't your soul will always tell you the truth and all you have to do is stay focused on this own internal genius of your own soul this part that's you know divine and attached to the gods and any anything that's coming from the outside should always be looked upon as secondary I just, I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And I do want to ask you, my my version of this dialogue doesn't have a footnote for that. You have footnote 12 there. Could you tell me what that is? Well, uh, footnote 12, it seems logical that a single universe could require nothing else for its existence. Anyway, yeah. It seemed logical, that, seemed logical to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, thank you. Yeah. But, and, and no, and thank you for raising that. It just, you know, as you read that, I hadn't actually given it that much importance. I hadn't underlined it. But now, as you read it, it just really made me think. It kind of raised the hairs on the back of my neck as I was thinking about that self-sufficiency of the soul you know, that you spoke about. And I think that's pretty incredible, actually. When you think of uh, Socrates' repeated references to all knowledge is recollection. And so we have that power of recollection inside us, and that power belongs to the soul. And the soul, because it's connected to the realm of being, the realm of being encompasses everything, and therefore the power of recollection has access to everything. Uh, and that actually, just what you said, just made me think about that. You know, so, and again, I have this vision in my head of a sphere, a giant universe-sized sphere, 
uh, and right in the middle of it is a soul. And then we are all branches of that soul, but we are able to follow those branches back to that main branch, which sits right in the middle of it all and has access to everything. And that would be self-sufficiency, I think. So that's that's pretty powerful. Pretty powerful indeed. So thank you for that. Um, Darren and then Clem. Yeah, I just want to just quickly jump off what um Brenda was saying about um yeah that passage uh it is very great and so it's saying here this universe very existence and or excellence sorry, enables it to keep its own company without requiring anything else and that its friendship with itself is enough and um so I, I want to also tie this back in with like the passage that James read earlier about the movements of the universe this description that Brenda pointed to you know what it reminded me of was actually it's reminding me of other things, other dialogues, um, just like you know, everything in this dialogue is Socrates. <laughs> because he's described, you know, at the end of Symposium, which we read last year, as just being the solitary figure, and he seems to be just content with himself. I mean, I, I don't think the idea that here though is that it make it means like we should be just isolate ourselves in the world, not care about the world and be hermits and just not care about other people. I think it means, yeah, it just means that we might. And we do have duties to other people and, and to be concerned with the world, but we don't, we don't need other things or other world to be like satisfied or to, you know, keep us company. I don't know. There's, there, there's probably more to be said and worked out there, but that's, that's just like my own superficial um, association right now with like Socrates, basically, that's what it reminded me of. Although it's also describing this universe. And it should also be said that when one is in this state, Although it's saying that one can keep one's own company, but it's also like when one is in this like state, I guess, or Socrates was, it's it's not just about his own ego or whatever, or his own pleasure, right? It's precisely through contemplating the entire universe <laughs> um, and, you know, philosophy and, and, and thinking about justice and all these things that actually is what he, what he's doing in this state. So it, it's not like solitary in the sense of being egoistic. It's like solitary in the sense of being, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to, I don't know how to put this in the word just beyond me, but it's like a solitary in the sense of, you know, having a relationship with the whole universe and like you being the you being the sort of the conduit for that. Anyway, I just want I do want to tie this in uh, also with uh, what James was saying about the emotion, because um, this uh, view of Socrates also ties in with the motion that was being described earlier as an understanding and intelligence is a turning or spinning upon itself. Because what Socrates also said about the most important thing is to, we have to know ourselves. And I think that can be interpreted so many different ways. And it does seem to be um, sort of maybe understood in different ways in different dialogues. But I think one part of it, the importance of knowing oneself is to know our own minds in a way, our own thinking. And in this dialogue, we see that's also related to knowing sort of our place in the universe <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, that's another connection with with Socrates. And I think that's another thing um, that idea of the motion of the universe might evoke this idea of knowing oneself, because it, the motion is described as a turning or spinning upon itself or oneself. So anyway, there's so there's so many connections you can draw. But those are just those are just my very <laughs> uh, superficial, uh, pres presently superficial attempts at making some connections. And, and like that, uh, Socrates had a relationship with the whole universe. That's very interesting because it does seem to come across in all of those dialogues. And I think about that ending of the symposium, I guess, where Socrates is just standing out, just solitary for all that time, just frozen in time. So um, 
I just wanted to just briefly read this quick section here, 36E to 37A, because it talks again about that motion. Once the whole soul had acquired a form that pleased him, he who formed it went on to fashion inside it all that is corporeal, and joining center to center, he fitted the two together. The soul was woven together with the body from the center on out in every direction to the outermost limit of the universe and covered it all around on the outside. And revolving within itself, it initiated a divine beginning of unceasing intelligent life for all time. Now, while the body of the universe had come to be as a visible thing, the soul was invisible. But even so, because it shares in reason and harmony, the soul came to be as the most excellent of all things begotten by him, who is himself most excellent of all that is intelligible and eternal. I think that helps to amplify that. And also, again, a very empowering. Uh, um, we have Clem and Roger, but maybe just Roger, because you haven't spoken yet. I'll, I'll give you the floor first, and then we'll go to uh, Clem. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I I like the the path kind of Brenda has led us on um, with her interpretation, and uh, this actual I mean the way I I look at it as as our soul, which we tend to forget, should be to some extent the center of the universe, and and this kind of um, to some extent the self centered type thinking. Uh, tend to be forgotten these days because of the influence of the outside is so uh, overwhelming and uh, effectively destroying our uh, self per se and and what is being discussed here has had its reverberations across the i mean the the centuries after uh with other philosophers i mean i can think of uh, Perhaps maybe Nietzsche come to mind when he compares the evolution of, of the person from like a camel who takes anything that comes their way as a burden and evolves into a lion where he begins to say no and goes into his own thinking and independence. So that's one instance. Another instance perhaps is the... Um, enlightenment that Kant was uh, kind of uh, proposed or advanced, where basically you have to learn to think for yourself. And he talked about that transition from minority to maturity. And once you're able to move on as a minor who has been uh, subject to dictation and guidance from uh, from, I mean, from someone else, uh, your parents, and so on, I mean, uh, figuratively speaking, uh, and when you're able to move into the age of maturity and begin to think for yourself, then that's when you begin to become enlightened. So um, I'm, I'm just maybe making some loose connections here from what, a little bit what Brenda or what we're, we're reading, that it's it's refreshing to see that we're being propelled into the opposite direction in today's society as opposed to what we were supposed to be uh, trying to become uh, increasingly more independent. Well, it's it's unfortunate. And and the way I see it, that hopefully will not, will not continue and, and lead us to the demise of, of, of society as a whole. A very interesting, a very interesting and powerful observation. Thank you. 
Um, and I think that's maybe, you know, maybe the material influence of things. If we think that material comes before the soul, then the only things that are visible are real. And things that are invisible, like like uh, Timaeus is saying here, the soul is invisible. And we know the soul is invisible. Has anybody ever seen a soul? We know we have a soul or an animating force or something inside us that's not visible. We know it exists. I mean, that's just, that's, that, that's kind of just knowledge right from the outset. So, so yeah, I think that's, that's a, an interesting and a very good observation. Um, we have just about a half an hour left, and I wanted to talk a little bit about proportion because we haven't really got there yet. Uh, and then I really want to leave a little bit of time at the end for 37, um, what is it, 37D to 38C, because it's such an extraordinary presentation of time. And maybe we can pick up our next session on that subject as well. So maybe we'll end with that part today. But just to get on to the subject of proportion, because right? that was my second question today is, is it really that important? So again, imagining if we are individual souls that have access to the center of that universal sphere, then our job, I guess, in the realm of becoming, everything around us is becoming with different limits. Uh, Socrates has said multiple times, he said in the Phaedo and elsewhere, that everything comes to be in opposite. So. Uh, it would seem that our task in the middle of that sphere is to measure the limits of the things that are becoming. And if we're measuring from the middle, then we want to measure to either end. And so there's some interesting points here about proportion. And I think maybe that's meant to help us to do this measurement. Um, so I'll just read a couple of sections here. This one is from 36C to 36D. And Timaeus has spoken about how difficult it was to mix the same and the different into the universe. So the universe itself is the same to itself, and it contains all sorts of different things. So it's like mixing two paints. You know, one, one paint is the same, but you mix the other paint in, and it makes it different. Uh, so how do you create this mixture with the same always prevailing? So it gets quite specific here. Um, so he says, next, he sliced this entire compound in two along its length joined the two halves together, center to center like an X, and bent them back in a circle, attaching each half to itself end to end and to the ends of the other half at the point opposite to the one where they had been joined together. He then included them in that motion which revolves in the same place without variation and began to make the one the outer and the other the inner circle. So we have two circles here. It goes on to say, and he decreed that the outer movement should be the movement of the same while the inner one should be that of the different. He made the movement of the same revolve toward the right by way of the side, and that of the different toward the left by way of the diagonal. And he made the revolution of the same, that is, uniform, the dominant one, in that he left this one alone undivided, while he divided the inner one six times to make seven unequal circles. And here it's those numbers again, six and seven. His divisions corresponded to the several double and triple intervals, uh, of which there were three each, he set the circles to go in contrary directions, three to go at the same speed and the other four to go at speeds different from both each other's and that of the other three. Their speeds, however, were all proportionate to each other. So there's some very specific things and maybe again here tying to the spherical geometry. So if we have a sphere, which is really composed of just an infinite number of circles offset at different angles, if you think of the sphere that way, then we have two things circling around each other in the sphere. We have the same, so there's this 
circle of the same and the circle of the different. And they're circling in different ways. Like they're circling against each other, but the same always prevails because the same is the outer circle and the different is the inner circle. And I, I made a footnote here because that reminded me of the dialogue, the ion, which we ended the last season with, which is an interesting dialogue because Ion was a rhapsode who goes around repeating the words of famous poets in dramatic fashion. And Ion was an imitator. And it was the idea of these two rings came up in the dialogue Ion, uh, where Socrates says, and you know that the spectator is the last of the rings, don't you? The ones that I said take their power from each other by virtue of the Heraclean stone. The middle ring is you, the rhapsode or actor, and the first one is the poet himself. So this it's interesting, you know, again, this idea of imitation. Different um, is what is where the imitations are happening, and the different is where the limits are. And the same is that kind of permanent realm of being. So I wanted to raise that section. And then I also wanted to raise this section here from 31b to 32c. So this is backtracking a little bit, but it, it does talk about proportions. And again, this idea of if we're going to make measurements, these measurements, our souls have to make these measurements to find the limits of the things that are in the realm of becoming. So this statement here, now that now that which comes to be must have bodily form and be both visible and tangible, but nothing could ever become visible apart from fire nor tangible without something solid. And solid here, the, the translator noted that this means cubes, uh, which is one of the platonic solids, uh, nor solid without earth. But it isn't possible to combine two things well all by themselves without a third. There has to be some bond between the two that unites them. Now, the best bond is one that really and truly makes a unity of itself together with the things bonded by it. And this, in the nature of things, is best accomplished by proportion. For whenever of three numbers, which are either solids or squares, the middle term between any two of them is such that what the first term is to it, it is to the last. And conversely, what the last term is to the middle, it is to the first. Then, since the middle term turns out to be both first and last, and the last and the first likewise both turn out to be the middle terms, they will all of necessity turn out to have the same relationship to each other. And given this, will all be unified. And I'll just stop briefly there to say, if you picture yourself in the middle and you have two limits of equal distance to either side of you, I think what he's saying here is imagine the middle is part of neither of those two limits, but it can access either of those two limits and therefore it becomes the same as those two limits. And those two limits, because they are the same as the middle, are the same to themselves. And that makes me think of the Euclidean axiom that things that are like one thing are like each other. And that's one of Euclid's axiom, axioms, which I really think, you know, if I'm standing in the middle um, and I'm looking at two limits and I'm measuring to two limits, and the measurement is equal from the middle, then everything is equal. Uh, the, the beginning and the end are like the middle, and the middle is like the beginning and the end. So I wanted to raise that. Uh, and then I'll just read the, the second paragraph here. So if the body of the universe were to have come to be as a two-dimensional plane, a single middle term would have sufficed to bind together its conjoining terms with itself. As it was, however, the universe was to be a solid, and solids are never joined together by just one middle term, but always by two. Hence the gods set water and air between fire and earth and made them as proportionate to one another as was possible. So that what fire is to air, air is to water, and what air is to water, water is to earth. He then bound them together and thus he constructed the visible and tangible universe. 
This is the reason why these four particular constituents were used to beget the body of the world, making it a symphony of proportion. They bestowed friendship upon it so that having come together into a unity with itself, it could not be undone by anyone but the one who had bound it together. So this is this universal guarantee of, uh, of unity by way of proportion. Um, so I found that was really interesting. And then we'll see, a, maybe I'll have time to read uh, another part that talks about specific proportions, but we'll leave that for the moment. Um, and we'll go to Clem and then Darren. Yes, uh, and, and I was actually thinking about the same thing, is like, how do you, after you have dissected the world and killed it by dissection, as a like a surgeon would kill a patient with a scalper, uh, just to find out what's like inside what the patient is, is made of, right, you need to kind of reanimate it back, you know, put the, the axiom it together somehow. So he throws in this, the idea of a binder you need, you need to have some kind of binder in there to heal everything and to um to reunite everything he talks about unity at the, at the end of that paragraph it says it will be will all be unified it, it kind of i just remembered one episode when i was selling my house and um, the bedroom ceiling needed to be painted and so the folks came in the contractors came in scraped the ceiling and started painting over it and guess what like the next couple of days cracks cracks appeared and so i had to change maybe three crews before people with knowledge came and then they actually realized that the a primer needed to be used uh so that you have to kind of throw the the binder to connect to different entities or, or different things uh, I, it almost seems to me it's it's sort of like an unavoidable step in Plato's metaphysics, uh, or maybe it is something that he it's pre it's presupposed right. It's not maybe revealed at the very beginning. Maybe it's just the trick to deliver the doctrine. First, you say okay, it's easier for people to think of stuff of what everything is made of by dissecting it. So you so you have to postulate different entities so there's one same which is unchangeable which is probably the the, the cause of, of everything and there is the body which is sort of like the outer body the the realm of becoming which never is uh and, and so you have a, a, a dichotomy there then plato goes like oh what have i done i just killed the you know i, I just like the uh as, you know, as, as when in Christianity, when they have like exorcists, they, they like the, the throw the the spirit out of the body. I just, I basically, I just got rid of the the living component of it just by dissecting everything in, into pieces. Like he sacrificed the the universe, really. So you know, following the myths, it's in a way, it's a myth. What he is doing, he starts maybe with a myth, but then he creates his own more of a scientific myth. Uh, but not really moving too far away from the original myth, right? Which is not only Greek. I mean, it's, it almost seems like a universal myth. You you have to crucify a, a supreme being, right? To create a, a universe. Uh, and then what do you do? Well, we have to kind of br uh, the um, blow the, the, the breath of life back into the uh, breathless body, right? To kind of to make it whole again. And so, so to me, it seems like it's an unavoidable step. Now he kind of catches up with. He, so he said, "Okay, we have a we have a corpse, 
but the corpse serves of the universe serves the purpose of just to show what the stuff what this is made of this the, maybe the stuff that it's made of or components uh not necessarily the gross matter right but just the components of the universe so we've broken it into pieces now let's bind it all back together because it's it's a, it's supposed to be a living creature but it's this manipulation that he goes through to draw us back to unity so that we don't forget that we're, <laughs> we're dealing with uh with a living organism it's it's just um the dynamics of this narrative is so much in line with other teachings like if, if you go to like the, i already mentioned advaita on, on, in the first class and I, I think that's precisely what they do when they deliver their doctrine they start with the division but then they kind of bring it all back to unity and so i think with finding this binder like a common measure and then somehow having to um disperse or dissipate the soul among the matter that the, with the body kind of mix it back with the body and make it cover the body and make it sort of unseparated again right it almost it all it, it's all it's blended with no no atoms it's like i think he's trying to escape this atomic view maybe that that was um proposed by um Lukip and and the Democritus maybe okay so he's trying to avoid that dichotomy even on, on the molecular level and so he has to find the common measure within the two realms but then also he has to make those two realms after they're combined make make them back into a living creature hence the soul and then he also needs to dissipate the soul into that new solution so he's like so he kind of re reinstates the unity after it's like you know it's like you you go to a car shop or you're you're learning the, the car they they take the car apart into in the components or maybe just to show you the diagram okay these are all the the pictures so but then if you look at each individual component then you you no longer have a car you don't have a an entity so you have to kind of assemble it back together and I guess with an example with the car, it would be, well, it's assembled in a certain way. We just don't throw everything in a, in a pile. It's, it had, there's an intelligent way of assembling so that all the pieces work together correctly. Uh, so he kind of does the, you know, the same thing with, with the universe here, yeah. uh, leading us back to, to, uh, you know, a living being, but I think it's, it's just a trick just to show the, the constitution without like killing it without creating a corpse really like a, a light you know lifeless body i'll stop here with a really interesting way of putting it and you use some really interesting analogies there i guess the difficulty presenting something that is a whole itself self-sufficient and you're trying to break it down into individual components but that's almost impossible because we don't have the capacity to understand the whole we can only understand the becoming so yeah, to use this bond as a seam, I guess, is, is an interesting way of putting it to, with those analogies. So thank you for that. One comment I'd like to make is I think this is geometrically defensible that any, any solid requires two, two things to tie it together. And I would say too, and we won't have time for this, maybe we'll take this up next time uh, because I do want to get to that. We only have about 15 minutes left and I do want to get to that section uh, on time. I would just say in this last section that I've highlighted, 
restricted a uh, 35A to 35B uh, to 36B rather, he gets some very specific proportions. And I put some very specific footnotes to this too. You know, filling double and triple intervals, um, these connections produce intervals of three halves, four thirds, and nine eighths within the previous intervals. He then proceeded to fill in all four thirds intervals with the nine eighths intervals, leaving a small portion over every time. The terms of this interval of the portion left over uh, made a numerical ratio of 256 over 243. And so it was that the mixture from which he had cut off these portions was eventually completely used up. But that's wow. I mean, 256 over 243, um, really interesting. Uh, I thought about that and I, I think about it in terms of exponents. I come out with 2 to the 8 divided by 3 to the 5th, which is very, very interesting. You know, again, to take us back to what Socrates always talks about, evens and odds, uh, both two and three are prime numbers, but two is the only of the infinite number of primes, which is even, right? All of the primes are odd. So uh, that interesting combination of two and three, I think is very interesting there. And I think maybe again, so the geometer is giving us some uh, interesting clues. So uh, we'll take Darren and it just, as you're talking, Darren, I'll just put this on the uh, on the screen, the section from 37B to 38C. Yeah, I, I wanted to respond to, or I guess comment on the passage you read. So I really like that phrase, is, the, the universe we live in is a symphony of proportion. I think that's just like a wonderful turn of phrase. Although I, I don't know if they had symphonies back then, but whatever, you know, whatever. However that translated, it just sounds really nice. And um, of course, it it's a vision of the universe that you know, put sort of mathematics in the center, you know, it's a symphony of proportions, you know, very specific proportions. And, you know, this, this really ties in with Plato's, you know, worldview, I think. Um, and then the other part I wanted to comment on is, um, yeah, the thing that stands out for me about this uh, creation of the soul that's been, the world soul that's being described, 35, that James read, is that this is the soul we're talking about. Like, so people are always wondering, like, what is a soul? What do you mean? What are you talking about? There is no soul. Like, like are people who have a materialist view, I guess. But actually, Plato is actually coming right out and telling you what the soul is. It's made by these components, um, these super extremely abstract components of like uh, combinations, these proportions of the same, the different, and being, I think. And then he describes how they're like mixed in different proportions. And like, I don't know, like, I can't, I don't think it's possible to, like, understand what this will look like visually in a universe, but, it, like, we know that insofar as Plato's talking about the soul here and elsewhere, like, he seems to think it's a super abstract thing, so don't think, like, so if you if you think, like, the soul is a, is a dumb idea because we can't see it or whatever, well, that, that's, that's clearly not what he's talking about. He's talking about the super abstract entity that there's a mixture of this very, you know, abstract categories that he capitalizes, or, or the translation, at least, does in puts in capitals like the same the different and being and and this is clearly different from the material world which he also describes you know he previously described how that was created so it's it's like a separate thing from that and and i think another interesting thing about the soul here uh plato's view of the soul i think deserves to be brought out is that it's the thing that brings order to that material world which is you know the material world we saw was it was, was itself a symphony of proportion okay that's fine and nice but like the world soul he's he's he goes on to describe is what sort of puts order to all that material stuff and so you might even see it in insofar as it's all mathematical it's it's almost like the laws of nature or whatever so there's like 
the laws of nature aren't instantiated any visually in the world, right? We sort of have to make these connections with our own intelligence. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's fascinating that like, you know, because there there are, you know, there are there are there are a lot of doubts whether a soul exists or what what a soul is, whether it exists and what it means. But you know, Plato actually comes out and tells you, you know, it's made from these really super metaphysical categories. It's this very abstract thing that puts order to the universe. You know, it's so it's like in contemporary terms, you know, you might call it laws of nature in more modern terms, but that relates to the soul for Plato. So that's interesting. And it, it seems to relate to thinking, you know, he talks about how it's related to um, knowledge or understanding. So anyway, so I just think that that just deserves to be brought out that he actually does come out and tell us what the soul is. We don't have to wonder and, and think Plato's being, you know, and it maybe just a final point to wrap up um my comment here is that I don't know if it was Steve or maybe other someone else or maybe a different context. I think that like these ideas of like the universe and whatever are like superstitious or like not rational and they're just based on mythology or whatever. But first of all, I think Plato's actually creating, you know, insofar as we call like these creation ideas of mythology, like he I think he's creating a new one that's different from the Greeks of his time. Although um, although that also puts him in danger a bit, you know, how Socrates was accused of impiety. So, you know, Plato's going to, you know, he's going to find a way to insert the Greek, the pantheon of the Greek gods later on. I um, recommend people look at that section because it's pretty funny because it's sort of bracketed. It's it's a, it, He uses a totally different method. He's like, oh, we're just going to rely on these stories that people told us to accept them. So it, it seems like he's actually not accepting them. He, he, he sort of pushes them in. He, so he creates these abstract, like his idea of the gods are like the stars, right? They're like constant and they're like something to do with, you know, the laws of the universe. And then, you know, but then the Greek gods, he sort of has to like push into his story, you know, as like these stories we have to believe. And then he, and he just leaves them on the side and he goes on with his with the rest of his account. So I think, you know, I think he's actually creating a new sort of mythology here. And I think, but I don't know if, but it's a very different from like superstition though, because he's actually, because he's actually tying it very closely with, well, basically, I think it comes out and says it's, it's it's an account based on number. It's based on mathematics. It's based on like the the orderliness of the universe. So I I think that I don't know. I think I, I just want to throw that out. That deserves maybe to be said too. That insofar as this, you might call this a creation myth, but like it's actually it actually has a really important place for um yeah mathematics and reason. I and I would point out one point. So I, I I thought, oh, actually, I think I've made a thought of the superstition idea because he actually talks about superstition in the reading today in relation to dreams. And um, I think it's relation to dreams. And um, but he he gives a, he actually gives a very naturalistic account of dreaming. He just he just says that those are just emotions within us, within us when we close our eyes and they're no longer interacting with emotions outside. And so then those emotions inside us create these dream things called dreams. But like we shouldn't be we shouldn't have these like I think he I don't know he talks about superstition in that context. And, and then he counters that with this sort of very naturalistic view. So, so I think he, he's creating a new account that has a lot of important place for reason and um, yeah, mathematics. And insofar as there's superstition in it, or we might call it mythology, he at least is a very novel configuration of how all these things fit together. So it's not a view that has no where dreams come from the gods from you know telling us things. It does it it, it sort of eliminates that. It's not a view that you know, the soul is some unexplainable thing. It's not a view of that. You know, it's 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 a very different new configuration that has a lot of uh lot a big place for reason and um and proportion and math numbers. I'm and done. So it's certainly and and um I think again we'll keep those 
specific proportions that he mentions in that last little bit that I read in mind when we get to the five platonic solids in the next session in two weeks, um, because I think they're going to be particularly important. Now, I don't know if anybody has really dissected these sections in a mathematical and geometric sense. Um, I'm seeing some logic in them. I really am. So I think that uh, there's reason he put those proportions in there. It, it, it's very, it's very unusual actually in platonic dialogues to have such specifics. And I think there's a reason for it. And maybe it relates to this section. So because we only have literally a few minutes left, I wanted to just read this section. So maybe what I'll do is I'll read this and then maybe we can pick up on this idea of time uh, at the beginning of our next session, because I think this is this is critical. This is, and this is such a this is such an amazing few paragraphs here. So this is 37D to 38C, in which Timaeus equates time with numbers. And again, if we think of ourselves sitting in the middle of that sphere, uh, the sphere encompasses everything. Uh, that middle point is the point where we have access to that infinite realm of being, and we're counting all of the things around us coming into being and passing out of being in this realm of becoming, uh, I would think numbers are pretty important, especially in terms of tracking the proportions of one quantity to another quantity as things are coming to be and passing away in time. Uh, so I, I just thought this was, this was exceptional, this part. So 37D starts, now it was a living thing's nature to be eternal but it isn't possible to bestow eternity fully upon anything that is begotten. And so he began to think of making a moving image of eternity. At the same time as he brought order to the universe, he would make an eternal image, moving according to number of eternity remaining in unity. This number, of course, is what we now call time. For before the heavens came to be, there were no days or nights, no months or years. But now, at the same time as he framed the heavens, he devised their coming to be. These are all parts of time, and was and will be our forms of time that have come to be. Such notions we unthinkingly but incorrectly apply to everlasting being. For we say that it was and will be, but according to the true account, only is, is it properly said of it. Was and will be are properly said about the becoming that passes in time, for these two are motions. But that which is always changeless and motionless cannot become either older or younger in the course of time. It neither ever became so, nor is it now such that it has become so, nor will it ever be so in the future. And all in all, none of the characteristics that becoming has bestowed upon the things that are born about in the realm of perception are appropriate to it. These, rather, are forms of time that have come to be, time that imitates eternity and circles according to number. And what is more, we also say things like these that what has come to be is what has come to be, that what is coming to be is what is coming to be, and also that what will come to be is what will come to be, and that what is not is what is not. None of these expressions of ours is accurate, but I don't suppose this is a good time right now to be too, metical, to be too meticulous about these matters. Time then came to be together with the universe so that just as they were begotten together, they might also be undone together should there ever be an undoing of them. So I will just kind of end things there with just a few brief thoughts about this. Um, these references to is in that last few sentences, uh, I think what he's saying there is that applies to the realm of being. Only is only exists in the realm of being. 
uh, in the realm of becoming, nothing ever is, it's always becoming. So nothing ever is. The, the is, the static is, is in the realm of being. Um, the reference to motions, I'm just looking for that, uh, we've read in here somewhere, has been and will be our motion. Motions are defined in the Theotetus as either changes in spatial position or changes in state. And so when he says motions, I think he's referring to a change in state here. And that's a change in the state of becoming. Something becomes, it has a past, it has a future. Those are motions. Uh, only is, is the present. I think that's a very interesting concept. Uh, and then, you know, the reference about time that imitates eternity and circle, according to number. Well, there's the mention of the circles again that we started today's uh, discussion with. Uh, and this idea, again, of imitation, uh, again, that which what they were trying to do when they were trying to create the Republic, the city of the Republic, they were trying to imitate some eternal template, I guess, uh, and trying to put everything into motion. Uh, but they found that it was difficult to do that. And Socrates declared at the beginning of the Timaeus that he just didn't believe in what they had imitated. Uh, so I think this is a, an, a lesson in how to imitate the eternal uh, a very interesting section, I think, you know, and, and I'd, I'd love to start our next discussion with this one and pick it up. Uh, again, we'll go from sorry, my, my notes here. Yeah, we'll go next time from 48A to 69A. Uh, and there, time is, we'll go on to describe a third element in the universe that contains all the limits of becoming and the imitations these limits represent of the timeless forms in being. So we get into the forms, we get into limits. Uh, and we get much more deeply into the realm of becoming where there's a lot of motion. There's no motion in the realm of being. So we'll deal with motion in the realm of becoming. So I think this would be a good place to start it. So with that being said, again, uh, a great discussion. We've had so much to cover today. It's, I actually didn't think that we would get quite as far as we did. So I think it's great that we were able to touch on all of these. And I think we maybe touched on the two questions that I raised, but we can always come back to them and to any other things that. Uh, the participants picked up on uh, that you think you'd like to continue to discuss and maybe to put into relation to what we'll discuss next time. So that will be in two weeks and uh, I'll post notes for that just in advance of the uh, of the meeting. So again, thank you for uh, everyone attending this and for making such great comments and contributions to the discussion. I think it, you know we all come out learning more and thinking more about what we've uh, what we came into uh, the meeting with. And, um, you know, hopefully there's some new ideas and thoughts here and some things that people have said that we can continue to uh, to pick up on in the next time. So I will thank everybody for being here and I will stop the recording and um, invite anybody who wants to stay online for an unrecorded half hour casual discussion on uh, Plato or philosophy in general. Uh, you're welcome to stay on, and otherwise, I hope to see everybody in two weeks. Thank you for coming.